Uh, Keep your Bibles right where they are. If you had your Bible there, if not, turn over to Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 through 30 will be our text for this morning. We will be continuing our little mini-series within the larger series of Daniel based on chapter 2 called Dreams, Death, and Deliverance. So far, we have looked at uh, two parts, the predicament and the prayer. I'll just quickly recap to get you up to speed. The predicament, it all started with a dream. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he could not understand and that none of his wise men in Babylon could understand or actually describe or interpret. Enraged by their incompetency, and I'm sure that his insomnia played into this, he issued a death order and sent his chief security officer, Arioch, to kill all of the wise men of Babylon. Uh, This created the predicament, or a predicament, for Daniel and his buddies because they were included in the group of the wise men. So now they're going to be killed because these other guys failed to do this job. When Daniel was told about the order, he asked the king for a stay of execution to seek his God for the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar granted his request. So that's the predicament. And then we we have the prayer. Immediately after leaving the king's court, Uh, Daniel went to his house and told his buddies to pray for mercy from the God of heaven in regards to this mystery, the king's dream. God was merciful and answered their prayer, and Daniel received a vision in the night that described the dream in all of its details. Total breakdown, total interpretation. In response to God's mercy and goodness, Daniel broke out in praise and prayerful adoration, and that, my friends, is where we left off last week. This morning, we're going to look at Daniel's next move, which I call the plan. The plan. Now, let's pray once more before going any further. And Father, again, we just want to humble ourselves in your presence, and we ask that you would teach us and instruct us. Send the Holy Spirit in power to do a work in our lives and our hearts, May this not be just a a message of words, but a message of power, transformative power by the power of the Holy Spirit and by your eternal grace. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves at this moment. We ask that you would teach us and train us and that we would be a little bit different today, a little bit more like Jesus as we exit this building and go about our lives. We lift up this time to you, and we also pray that you would be glorified uh, at the highest level through all that we do here today, especially this message. May you receive all the glory. If there's anyone in this room who's going to think great thoughts and be thankful, may they direct all of that to you, because you are the one whom it is due. And so we give you this time and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the plan. Now let's... uh, Pick it up right down there in verse 24. 24. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, this is Daniel speaking to Arioch, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Okay, so... 
Here we see the plan. The plan had to do with connecting with Arioch and then delivering the life-preserving interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's Daniel's plan, if you want to call it a plan. After praising the Lord, Daniel went to Arioch and told him to stop the execution, put that on hold for right now, and then to take him in to see the king or to speak with the king. And there's a an immediacy about this here. You know, stop what you're doing and take me in. And Daniel did say to him, I will show the king the interpretation. This was his way of saying, I have obtained the answers to the king's question. I have received an interpretation to his dream. I have, in other words, what the king is looking for. So don't kill, this, don't kill us and don't kill everyone else. I've got what he's looking for. So that's what he says there. That's how this whole thing launches. Now look at 25. And some of these verses will move quicker than others because there's more content to them and less. Then Arioch, this is Arioch's response. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him. He's speaking to the king. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Arioch brought Daniel in in haste, meaning quickly. There was the immediacy here. He, he finds out this guy's got answers. He takes him right in. Now, something interesting popped into my mind as I was reading this verse over and over. Did you guys notice anything odd about his introduction, about Arioch's introduction, how he introduced Daniel, how he began this conversation or dialogue or his announcement, if you will, Notice again what he said to the king. He said, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man. Okay, so he made it sound like he had gone out and searched among the Jewish exiles and found an interpreter of the king's dream. That's what I pull from it. He didn't just go in and say, here's the guy that can do it or whatever. He said, I found a man among the exiles. There's actually somebody among the people that you took out of Israel, you took out of Judah. I found one among them who can do this job. Now, is that exactly what happened? No, it's not what happened at all. Arioch was the executioner, not a member of a pastoral search team. Verse 24 says, Daniel went into Arioch. So it's the reverse. Arioch didn't find anyone. Daniel found him. Daniel went to Arioch, or Daniel found the chief of police. So why did Arioch use these words? Why did he tell the king that he found an interpreter among the exiles? Well, just ponder that for a moment. Why would somebody say something like that? Why do we do those kinds of things, you know? Why, why do we twist it a little bit to make us look good, right? You know, to, come on, you know? Well, I think that it had to do with self-promotion or self-glory. Arioch probably reckoned or figured that if Daniel was successful, the king would not only reward him because the rewards were great to the one who could interpret the dream. He figured... If he can do the job, his reward will be great. And since I found him, maybe I'll get a portion of that reward. Ian DeGuid wrote, 
Isn't this the way the world works? Pass as much blame for your failures onto other people and claim as much credit as you can for other people's success? Ain't that the way the world works? Ain't that the way we work at times? He's totally right. This is how the world works. It's what we do at times. It's probably how I function most of the time, unfortunately. We just love to associate ourselves with those who are successful, maybe in business, maybe in ministry, or or maybe in something else. Why do we like to associate ourselves with successful people? Because we love to promote ourselves. That is one of the biggest problems with humanity, one of the biggest defects of the fall, that we're so self-centered, self-actualized, self-promoting, so prideful. We love to promote our self-image. The Corinthians were crazy enough to do this with theology. Okay, with the things of God, with the Bible, with truth, with theology. They were nuts. They formed these little theological cliques. I follow the Apostle Paul. I follow Apollos. And the ones who really knew how to play the game went right to the top and said, I follow Jesus. My theologian's superior to all of yours. They did this. And how did Paul respond to them? Well, thank you for following me. This is fantastic. Well, thank you for going to the top with Jesus. No, he scolded them. He said, you are acting like, quote, people of the flesh, end quote. Quote, infants in Christ, end quote. 1 Corinthians 3.1. Today, we would say things like maybe some of us that are in ministry or, you know, you've been a Christian for a while. We would say, well, I follow John MacArthur or I follow R.C. Sproul or I follow K. Arthur or I follow Beth Moore or I follow this person or that person. Those are the people that I track with. We're doing the same thing as the Corinthians at this point. At the end of the day, it's all about our pride. It's all about self-promotion. And at the end of the day, do you think really people are interested or care about who you track with in terms of theology? You know, I I mix and mingle with a lot of unbelievers, and when I say the word theology, they they think that I'm going to have a procedure done. I don't know what theology means. What's an R.C. Sproul? Yeah? What's a K. Arthur? I think I had one of those on my heel. They don't know or care about these things, and we're walking around, well, I'm me, I, uh, me monster, you know? And we do it in a million other ways. And, 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 and even worse, when, when there is no credit or glory due to us, we try to set ourselves up next to those who are getting some, so maybe some of it will rub off. This is what Arioch was doing, I believe. He reminds us that we are all by nature glory leeches. We are. Man, we're out for it. We want self-glory so bad. In verses 27 through 28, Daniel will remind us for how we should be, but we've got to look at verse 26 first. 26. The king declared to Daniel whose name was uh, Belteshazzar. I like the way Robin pronounced it. Now I'm going to try to copy her. Belteshazzar. Are you able to make... No, this is the king speaking to Daniel or Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream 
that I have seen and its interpretation? It's a great question. Now, notice how we have the Belteshazzar part there. This is the name by which Nebuchadnezzar used for Daniel. That was his Chaldean name that he had been assigned. So he says, Belteshazzar, can you give me the dream and its interpretation? He doesn't use his uh, Hebrew name, which exalts his Hebrew god, Yahweh. He uses the, the name that exalts one of his Chaldean astral deities. Belteshazzar, can you give me this interpretation? Describe to me. Can you do what the Chaldeans failed to do? Now just imagine the scene in the king's court or quarters, wherever this took place. As this question from the king rang out, all eyes and ears turned to Daniel. Let's see what he says. Does he have the answer? I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room at this moment. Anticipation and anxiousness must have filled the room. Why? Because much was at stake. Life or death. At least for the wise men, Daniel and his buddies. Now look at 27. Here's Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar's question. Can you tell me the dream and interpret it? Daniel answered the king and said... No wise man or wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. I'm fairly certain that is not the answer that King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. No, but Daniel, you must know, could have easily answered yes, right? Thus taking the credit for himself. Of course I can, oh great king. Boom, 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 boom. Give me the credit. He could have done that. Instead, he reaffirmed what had already been stated by the Chaldeans and proven through their failure. As he spoke of their inability, because that's what he did, he went right down the chain of all of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. He kind of listed them all there, astrologers and enchanters and whatever. As he spoke about them, he was highlighting their inability to unravel the mystery. And he was implying the absolute worthlessness of Babylonian religion or Babylonian theology. Basically, king, I'm not going to tell you yes or no yet, but what I'm telling you is that your people and your religion and your leaders cannot do the job. Now, draw an inference. Your Religion and your astral deities and your wise men are useless. They have no power. They have no knowledge. You see, what he was doing is he, he wanted to make sure that the king understood unequivocally that no wise man, no enchanter, no magician or astrologer could meet the king's demands. And what he was actually doing is setting the stage and preparing his hearers for what he was about to say next. Look at 28a. I guess I divided that verse. Yes. Oh, no, 28a, yes. It says, and here's what he says immediately following, none of your people can do it. 28a, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. This is amazing. Instead of promoting himself like Arioch was attempting to do. Daniel humbled himself 
and used the opportunity to exalt his God publicly. There is a model here for us in our relationships with those who do not know our God. In contrast to the self-promoting way of the world, and we've covered that to some degree, we should constantly seek occasions to exalt and declare publicly the praises of our God. Whatever gifts and abilities we have, whatever successes we may meet with in life, All of them are ultimately the work of the one who gave us those gifts and opportunities along with the diligence and perseverance to pursue them. We are simply God's servants doing the work he has assigned to us. He deserves all the praise, glory, and adoration. Now, in some ways, this is exactly what evangelism is. It is simply described God promotion. The gospel is God's message to the world, and it promotes not only his presence or existence, but also his justice and his grace, his love. When sharing your faith with others, the best thing you can do is promote God. Don't promote yourself and talk about what you're doing or your theology and so on. Be humble and promote the one who saved you by grace through faith. Promote the one who has the power to change lives. Talk about what God does and what God can do. Not you. Humility has to do with seeing yourself rightly in comparison to the surpassing greatness of God. A truly humble person will think in terms of logic. He or she will say, I have what I have because of God. Why would I promote myself rather than the one who gave me all things? A truly humble person recognizes that God is the source and giver, and that apart from Him they would have absolutely nothing. A truly humble person will thus promote God as supreme and glorious, and they will fight against the glory leech of their old nature. They will battle that. In fact, it's a constant battle. I was watching the Olympics the other night, and I uh, was fortunate enough to have it on during a particular moment where I, I watched two U.S. Olympic divers model this humility and God exaltation. It was just, it just about brought me to tears. After winning silver medals, Steele Johnson and David Badiah both professed Christ and said that their identities are rooted in Christ, not in diving. You know, there's such glory that comes at the Olympic Games, such personal self-glory. I mean, you get medals hung around your neck. You're a national hero. And here's two guys that are saying, you know, well, if we won, that's fantastic, our identities in Christ. If we lost, that's fantastic, our identities in Christ. Either way, that's, that's the essence of our message. That's God exaltation, not personal exaltation. Back in June... During qualifying for the Olympic Games, um, Badiah said this to a reporter because they just did so well during qualifications, they actually made it to the Olympics, right? He said this, we can't take credit for this. To God be the glory, which is why we do what we do day in and day out. Those are his words. That's God promotion. That's, to me, that is true evangelism. 
when we promote God rather than ourselves, in some ways evangelism is kind of leaving yourself out of the mix. You can, I mean, just talk about yourself in that what God has done in your life and for you, but don't talk about what you're doing for God. Well, I go here and I do this and I go there and I do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's a theology? People don't even know what you're talking about. They have no concept of this. Exalt God. Talk about God. There is one last significant thing in verse 28a we need to look at. I pointed to it last week because we saw a hint of it in the last passage. It is the designation Daniel used, God in heaven. This was an incredibly bold move for him to use this title right here, right now. Daniel, it's very obvious that Daniel was not afraid to promote his God in public or before unbelievers, nor was he afraid to declare the superiority of his God. God in heaven basically means the God who is above the astral gods of Babylon or the God who is greater than Nebuchadnezzar's sun, moon, and star gods. Him using that designation basically puts his God above Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but okay, thinking in terms of human logic again, that just doesn't seem wise to me. This would be like standing in an Iranian palace before President Rouhani and declaring that Christ is superior to Allah. It would be the equivalent to that. Now you just ask Pastor Saeed what that gets you. He just got released for $400 million. There's my political plug. I mean, seriously, you, you, you say these kinds of things in front of certain world leaders and you're in, you're in a lot of trouble. You say it in front of an ISIS kingpin and you're dead. You're dead anyways. Just boldness of Daniel here, just at God in heaven, my God. Incredible. Now look at 28b and 29. 28b and 29. This is Daniel still speaking. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Now he's setting the stage to break down what happened, but he gives this statement first. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. All right, so in the first half of 28b, Daniel told the king that the God of heaven revealed that the dream had to do with the latter days, okay, the future. So the nature of the dream is prophetic. It has to do with the future. It's the latter days. In the second half of 28b and in 29, Daniel revealed something which to me is just mind-boggling, totally extraordinary. Nebuchadnezzar, here's how it played out. Nebuchadnezzar would lay on his bed and wonder about the future. He would wonder 
about his kingdom and, and what would happen in the future and what will happen when, when I'm no longer on earth to rule my kingdom. Who will come after me? How will my kingdom go? He would even go as far as to ask himself questions in his mind. He would say these things literally to himself in his heart, in his mind. We call this daydreaming, don't we? Haven't you ever sat and pondered the future? Asked yourself inside, what will be and what will happen? How will my children turn out? Will I get cancer? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with our home? Have you never just laid around or thought to yourself these things? This is exactly what he was doing. He would lay on his bed at night maybe and just ponder the future and ask himself these questions on the inside. He was doing something that's very, very normal. And I would say uh, this would be something that a king of a kingdom would do because he has great responsibility and great concerns. He would daydream these things. Now, here's what's extraordinary about this. The dream Nebuchadnezzar experienced was in response to his questions. In other words, he asked questions on the inside about the future, and then he received a dream which contained answers. Here's my paraphrase of, of 29. O king, when you laid on your bed and asked questions about the future, the God of heaven who reveals mysteries answered your questions in this dream. That is incredible to me. It's mind-boggling that God was actually listening to this king and that God actually responded to this king and answered his questions, obviously in a cloaked prophetic dream, but he gave an answer. In other words, in a, in a way, God was responding to this king through the dream. Marvelous. Now just think about the implications of this verse of 28b for a moment. Think about the implications of it. God is listening to our thoughts and to our internal words. We have an example of it right here with a guy who didn't even love Jesus. A pagan, you know, idolatrous, false God-worshipping dude that we would think that God wouldn't have anything to do with. And here is the God of heaven listening to him. God Here's our thoughts. He heard the thoughts and questions of Nebuchadnezzar. Thus, he listens to all of our thoughts and internal words or questions. Jeremiah 17.10 The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. Now, the idea of God hearing our internal thoughts and words, if you will, I think is very encouraging because there are times where it even says that the Holy Spirit responds with His own words. He takes our yearnings and burnings inside. When we can't express how we feel in words, the Holy Spirit translates those emotions and internal words into words that He proclaims to Christ, who is our mediator, if you will. So there's great encouragement that comes from knowing that God knows us that deeply and that intimately, that He actually 
hears our heart cry and he hears our prayers when our prayers aren't even spoken out loud. He hears our questions about the future. What will be, God? What will happen? He hears. Great encouragement comes because God does that. Great encouragement comes, though, provided that our thoughts and internal words are profitable and not profitless or careless. You see, it's a double-edged sword, right? If he hears everything you say and everything you think, and what is thinking? It is speaking on the inside without verbalizing anything. It's a conversation you're having in your heart. If he hears all of it, that's an encouragement because some of the things that we say on the inside are great. But it's also shocking because some of the things that we say on the inside are very careless, very sinful. Think of it like this. God has a wiretap on your inner voice and on your outer voice. He's tapped in. He's like the government, but much greater He is listening in. He's got your tongue tapped. He's got your mind tapped. He's listening in. He hears what you think and he hears what you say. We're all wiretapped. I've been trying to find the wire so I could cut it. Can't seem to locate it. I guess it's invisible. He uses some kind of mystical fiber optics that I can't get my hands on. You just can't hide from him. He hears your thoughts. He hears your words. So he's wiretapped us, he's listening in, he's hearing it all. And let me tell you, that is an awesome God who can listen to every thought and every word of every person who has ever existed, will exist, exist today. That's unreal. Now in Matthew 12, 36, it actually says that God is not only listening in, but he is actually categorizing our words He is putting them into two files or recording them on two recordings, if you will, under profitable or careless. So it's not just that he hears and listens, it's that he records. Matthew 12, 36 also says that on the day of judgment, God will hit the playback and give us what we got coming to us. Well, that's not true of Christians because we've been saved. Who told you that? You're not going to escape this. Your words are being judged by him. They're being recorded. There are two future judgments mentioned in Scripture where God will hit the playback button or as it says in Revelation 20, open the books. What are the books? Everything you've thought, said, or done with perfect accuracy. At the great white throne judgment, unbelievers will be judged for their words and receive various levels of hellish punishment. At the Bema seat judgment, for believers, believers will be judged for their words and receive various kinds of heavenly rewards or maybe no heavenly reward at all. Now, I'm not referring to salvation because salvation is not a reward, salvation is a gift given in power by the Holy Spirit. It's irreversible. You can't ever lose that, no matter how you speak. You could have a righteous tongue and utter these great praises to God. You could, I don't know how, but speak like a sailor and somehow still narrowly escape the flames. I'm not speaking of 
Heaven as a reward. Heaven or salvation is not a reward. I am speaking of the kinds of blessings and status God will give to his children in his kingdom. There are variations. There is different strata of position in heaven as there are different strata or is a different strata in hell. Those who speak profitably, believers who speak profitably and serve him well will receive heavenly rewards. Those who don't will not. Now, some of us would say, well, that's okay because I'll still be in heaven. Okay, what that tells me is that you're not saved by grace because you wouldn't take your salvation for granted and just cop out on these things. No, what actually comes with true salvation is a built-in DNA to want to please the Lord and hate your sin. So whenever we say to ourselves, well, at least I'll be in heaven, I'm not sure you will be if you're saying that. You don't sound like a regenerated new person. But you will no doubt be in heaven if you are a true believer. And I do believe you will be working on your speech and your thoughts and these things throughout life. But at the end of the day, at the Bema Seat Judgment, okay, Phil, I've got your recording. That's funny because I hid the tape last week. I came up here, I had a vision, and you know, no, I've got it right here. We have 17 million backups, you know. We use the cloud, you know. It's an encouragement, but it's, it's also, I think for me, very, very sobering. It, it, it ought to cause us to be more careful with what we think and say. Should it not? So, Daniel told the king that his mysterious dream was the God of heaven's response to his questions, his internal questions, and that the same God of heaven was about to reveal to him the answers in detail and in such a way that he could understand. Now, before... Doing so, Daniel made a statement about his part in the matter. And I think what he wanted to do was he really wanted to make sure that God got all the glory for what he was about to say. This is a model for us, and it is the way that Daniel lived his life, and it should be our default mode to be pursuing the glory of God above all else. Daniel's doing that. Even when he's speaking to a king, I want to make sure that I don't say anything about myself that causes him to get crazy about me. He needs to become crazy about the God of heaven. Look at verse 30a. He says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living. Now, Daniel's incredible humility was on display again here. We've seen it in this text. We saw it in the last text. He basically told Nebuchadnezzar that his wisdom, that his abilities played no part in getting or acquiring the interpretation. It was not. He tells the king, it was not because I am wiser than anyone else on the face of the earth. It's not because I'm more talented than anyone else. It's not because I'm more skilled than anyone else. That's how you can translate his words. It's not because I'm better than others that I came up with this. 
Is that an example of humility or what? Because some of us would say, well, you know, I, I, do, have a, I do have a master's degree in theology, and, and so that really helped. I have a PhD, and that helped me to... I have street smarts, and that helped me to figure out what to do. He didn't do any of that. Now, he displayed incredible humility again here. He was literally trying to steer the king away from glorifying himself. Daniel was not in the least bit interested in self-promotion or the rewards he could receive from the king. He was interested in God's glory. He was literally captivated by the glory of God. He had what John Piper calls a God-entranced vision of all things. If you've ever read anything by Jonathan Edwards, the you know, our country's greatest biblical theologian of all time. I haven't seen one better than him come out yet. There's been a couple close guys, but this guy is just astonishing with the way that he beheld the glory of God. If you ever read anything from him, that is the the drive of all of his writing and preaching. It's the glory of God. Daniel had this God-entranced vision of all things. He sought the glory of God above all else, and that is incredible. Now he goes on to list two reasons why God revealed this mystery to him. He gives a rationale. Now I'm going to switch to the New King James Version here for 30b because it includes a detail the ESV leaves out. I'm not exactly sure why the translators left it out. Um, It doesn't cause you to, uh, there's not an error, there's nothing felonious here, there's just an important detail, I think, that that we need to hear. If you read 30b in the ESV, you will think that there was one reason why God gave the interpretation to Daniel. If you read the New King James, you'll see two. Look at 30b, well, I guess it doesn't do you any good to look at it because you probably don't have a New King James, just listen Some of you might have one. Does anyone have a New King James? (laughs) The guy in the back. Of course, he's on his phone, so he's Google searching every translation available. There it is. It's good to see you, brother. Here it is. Here's the rationale. Here's the reasons why God gave him the interpretation. But for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. That you may know the thoughts of your heart is pretty much the ESV translation. This one adds a component that has to do with Daniel and his pals. So first, God revealed the mystery to Daniel so that he and his buddies would be preserved or not killed. That is what he means by for our sakes. God, in essence, what Daniel's saying is God chose to be merciful to us and to deliver us from your death warrant He gave us the interpretation because he loves us, because he's merciful to his people. That's what he's saying. For our sakes. See why it's important to see that there? Second, God revealed the mystery to Daniel so that the king would discover the thoughts of his heart. Now, you've got to be real, real careful here. At first glance, it would appear that Daniel was referring to the questions that The king was asking in his heart, what will happen in the future? 
blah, 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 blah. That is not at all what he meant here. Would we all agree that at first glance, that's what we're thinking? He wants to answer the king. This is about the questions. It is, but it isn't. He was referring to something else here that is so ultimately important, I think more important than the king's desire or concern about the future of his kingdom. God had something else in mind here, vastly more important to this king long term, believe me. Where do we find the answer? What was he referring to here? We must go to Ecclesiastes 3.18 because Ecclesiastes 3.18 is linked to this verse. It is tied to it. If you have a reference Bible, you will see a small letter. It takes you there. Ecclesiastes 3.18 says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. That is a bizarre verse. In fact, if I wasn't reading it in the context of Daniel 2 here, I'd probably have no idea what he's talking about. Solomon penned this strange verse about 350 years before Daniel was ever born, before the Babylonian exile. And when he wrote it, he was reflecting on the condition of the children of men, their sinful and polluted state. He weighed and considered in his mind their actions, conversation, and course of life, and was concerned how it would go with them on the day of judgment. His observation was that men were not reasonable like God had originally intended prior to the fall. They weren't reasonable, they weren't logical, they weren't righteous at all. They were more like brutish beasts. I once heard a person say, and I don't know if it was an interview or something like that, they said, no wonder people act like animals today. They were taught in school that they evolved from them. We are brutish in our natural state. We are animalistic. Survival of the fittest. Unrefined. Now, this was Solomon's observation. He was the wisest man to ever live, with the exception of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. His assessments were extremely accurate. Solomon also also observed that God tests men in ways that cause them to realize that they are in this terrible condition. Ecclesiastes 3.18 is linked to verse 30b because that is exactly what God was doing with Nebuchadnezzar. This is about your future, King Nebuchadnezzar, but not the future of your kingdom, but the future of your soul. God brought circumstances to bear on His life that were calculated to show Him His smallness to reveal his sinful heart and to humble him before the Lord. In fact, chapters 2, 3, and 4 are actually laid out and structured in this fashion. In chapter 2, God revealed the king's smallness. You can't interpret the dream, man, because you're nothing. You think you're a big king. You can't even understand this mystery, and none of your wise men can. Hello, smallness. 
In chapter 3, God revealed the king's sinfulness. You want to build golden towers to yourself? Go ahead. You want to burn my godly righteous men in, 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 in the fires of furnaces? Try it. Chapter 4, in chapter 4, God re- actually humiliated the king, meaning he humbled him. So chapter 2 has to do with his smallness, chapter 3 has to do with his sinfulness, and chapter 4 has to do with humbling him or his humiliation. Now here's what's absolutely incredible. If you flip to the end of chapter 4, you will see the end result of God's pulverizing grace in the king's life. You will see Nebuchadnezzar not as an idolater, Not as a worshiper of astral gods, but as a worshiper of the Most High, King of Heaven. Amen! That's the point! It doesn't matter. Your kingdom doesn't matter. What matters is you. Closing. You know, every Sunday we try to, if we're not proclaiming Jesus Christ just straightforward, we try to take these passages, which I'm, I'm just, they blow my mind how deep and threaded they are in the Scripture. We try to take these passages and we try to figure out how they point to Christ because it's all about Jesus. Any sermon that does not proclaim Christ is not a sermon, it's a failure. Jesus is the point. And all of Scripture announces Him and points to Him in some way. You just have to look. How does this text point to Jesus? Well, I think it does in a number of ways, and I've got one for you. Maybe it's the more important one. Daniel's pursuit of God's glory reminds us of Jesus' pursuit of God's glory. But Jesus did it at a whole other level, at the highest level. Every aspect and facet of his life was directed at the glory of God, the glory of his Father. He testified to this repeatedly in the Gospel of John. He came into the world, he says in John 17:4, to glorify God. In John 7, 18, he came seeking the glory and only the glory of the one who sent him. In John 8, 49, he said just so plainly, I do not seek my own glory. Bottom line, Jesus' primary objective was to glorify God. Well, Pastor Phil, I have great difficulty in that because I think his primary objective was John 3.16 to come save people and all that. What do saved people do? Glorify God? Just think about it. Everything he did, that focus, his words, his deeds, his actions, his prayers, his meditations, even in his sleep was about the glory of the Father. Even, even, even 
in and through His horrible death on the cross. Especially through His death, His horrendous death on the cross. In my opinion, which is probably worth two pesos, His death on the cross glorified God above every other historical event because at the cross, God's holiness, God's justice, God's wrath, God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace were put on display in an unparalleled fashion for the entire world to see. Jesus wasn't nailed to a cross in a backyard. He was nailed to a cross on a hill that overlooks Jerusalem. Can you think of any other event that displayed those attributes, God's attributes, those particular attributes, attributes more vividly? Well, what about creation, Pastor Phil? Creation doesn't testify to God's mercy and grace. It testifies to God's power and creativity. What about the resurrection? The resurrection is astonishing. It's amazing. I'm not sure that it comes... It's at the same level as what the cross achieves because the cross literally gives a vivid display of many, many, many of God's attributes. Thus, bringing Him incredible glory. Because without the cross, no one is saved. No one becomes a glorifier. Now, if you can think of another singular event that displays those attributes of God, His justice and, and, and wrath and, and love and mercy and grace and those things, man, I'd love to talk about it with you, that, that, that do it better than the cross. And there could be something. Some of you might be thinking, well, I know of something. That's fine. Here's my point. As Christians, we are to pursue God's glory as Daniel and Jesus did. Mostly Jesus. Daniel is a great model for us. He is. But Jesus is the better Daniel. The target of our lives should be the glory of God. The bullseye. God's glory is what we are to aim for. Now, quickly, are there any practical ways we can do this? Of course there are. What have we learned from the text This is not a comprehensive list. These things come right out of the passage we've been looking at. What have we learned? Number one, we can glorify God by walking humbly. Avoid boasting and self-promotion. Pride, self-promotion, boasting do not exalt and glorify God. They glorify us. But it's a false glory. You can choose each morning to say, I'm going to, Lord, I pray to you and I'm going to walk humbly today. I'm not going to think of myself as better than others. I'm certainly not going to compare myself to your surpassing goodness and amazingness, your highly exalted state. I am nothing. I am what some of the reformers would say. You are amazing and incredible. You are God above all, and I am nothing but a worm. It's okay to be a worm. It's better be a worm in the kingdom of God than not. 
You could just say to yourself, man, I want to walk humbly today, Lord, and, and help me to do that. Help me to realize when I'm starting to think too much of myself or when I start to engage in conversation where, you know, you me. How about you God? That's the right way to do it. Secondly, we can glorify God by promoting God. Evangelism. True sharing your faith. You promote God. When you engage with people and you want them to know about Jesus, you talk about Jesus. You don't talk about all the things you're doing. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I went over to, I went to Africa a couple of years ago and it was incredible and, you know, and, and I went over here and I did this and all did that. You know, all you have to say is, you know, I, I, I'm, I am next to the Apostle Paul because if I take this title from him, he's going to be really ticked when I enter heaven. I am the second chief of all sinners. And God is great. That's true evangelism. Not only that, that God exists and that He's great, but He's grace. And I am a walking testimony to His grace. Well, I, I, you know, I studied under Sproul in Florida and I went to this school and I... <laughs> I got to look in the mirror when I say that. I didn't actually go to that school, but I would probably try to tell people I did. Just promote God. That's true evangelism. Just, just talk about Him and what He's doing and what He can do. Do we not realize that there is utter and absolute hopelessness in our community and in our world? And we have a God of hope. Third, from the text... We can glorify God by speaking profitable words instead of careless words. We can glorify God by thinking profitable thoughts instead of careless thoughts. Thus, avoid having one file too full and having to sit there and listen to, well, you did this on April 17th, and you did this on April 17th, and you did this. Are you ever going to get past April 17th? No. And you did this on April... Our words, in that they would be profitable, would be proclaiming the excellency of our God and His work. And they would be words that build each other up. They encourage one another. And uh, since I was studying this earlier in the week, I've been just trying to catch myself. And I've got all these little things that I do and, you know, and little things that I say. And, you know, I use a lot of Christian cuss words. You know, they're like the real thing, but not quite. Those aren't any more profitable than the real thing. They're both careless. So, you know, I've, son of a biscuit. You know, oh yeah, okay, uh-huh. Son of a biscuit, August 12th. Well, I didn't say the real thing. Yeah, you did in your heart. Dang it. Do you find yourself just saying a lot of stuff and thinking a lot of things and that ultimately don't glorify God in any way, shape, or form, whether they be helpful to someone or they're just worshipful? The half-brother of Jesus had a huge problem with this, James. Who can tame the two-ounce beast? 
at your tongue. Well, I certainly want the Holy Spirit to keep it a leash on it. We can glorify God by walking humbly. We can glorify God by promoting God. We can glorify God by speaking and thinking profitable words instead of careless words, careless thoughts. If you set your goal and mind on doing these things, and if you do them, and you're not going to do them perfectly, but if you just set out to do them when they happen, God will be glorified in and through your life, and He will be pleased, and your joy will be full. All three of those things just have to do with being obedient to God's Word, and that is the primary way that He's glorified. Obedience to His Word is how we glorify Him. And sharing the faith and doing these three things, it just has to do with being obedient to what He's commanded. I'll end with this. Let's make Psalm 115, verse 1, our heart cry. We sang it earlier. Not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Amen.